Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. It is my great honor to have as my conversation partner today, Sarah Cohen-Johnson. She is the author of Teach Your Children Well. Uh, She is also a ministry consultant, a trainer, and a coach. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, Sarah, so for people who ministry consultant might be a new (laughs) term or phrase, just unpack that for us a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. I have uh, about 20 years of experience in ministry, starting with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I was a staff worker with them and then um, as a executive pastor in a church plant. And so what I do now is I basically, I work with pastors and ministry leaders in all sorts of areas. So I do training design. I coach them in ministry skills and effectiveness. I have a, a big contract with my denomination to help them work on their church planter training. So basically I'm coming alongside, I'm not on the front lines right now, but coming alongside to help pastors and ministry leaders uh, thrive. That's great. Yeah. Sarah, talk a little bit about the book. What's what's the backstory for Teach Your Children Well and how, yeah. how did you land on this project? Yeah. So in my last ministry post, I was serving as the executive pastor at Uh, my church. And we did not have a kids person on staff at the time. And so I was trying to hire someone. We weren't finding the right fit for uh, what we were looking for and the budget that we had, to be honest. So I said, well, part of my role is to develop teams and leaders. So what if I lean in for one year and develop a lay team, and then we'll revisit the hiring process in a year. So I spent a year working with our kids team and doing all kinds of reading. And I was a mom, you know, I still am a mom, but I had kids. And uh, so as I'm reading, I, I came across, you know, the big bad statistic that a lot of us probably know that 50% of kids who are actively involved in their churches will leave the faith after they graduate. And as a mom and as a pastor, that was really troubling to me. So I kept digging in, you know, how do we want to kind of fight against that at Sanctuary? Like, what do we want to do to change that statistic? What I found in doing some more research is that there actually is one thing that makes a drastic difference in that number. And it has nothing to do with hiring better staff, doing better programming. It's actually parents, parents who talk about and practice their faith at home. 82% of their kids go on to follow Jesus as adults. So for me as a pastor, I was like, oh my goodness, we need to pour our energy into equipping parents. And so that started a seminar that then turned into a course. And I did that in sort of local context. And then eventually that turned into the book. Sarah, what did you learn about your own parenting as you kind of walk this path? Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, one of the the things that I talk about in the book, that was a big um, kind of revelation for me is just uh, digging into the idea of uh, children's spiritual development. So children go through different phases of their faith development from birth to 18 and understanding that has been hugely helpful for me as a parent. Um, so, you know, little kids, uh, their primary mode of spiritual engagement is experience. They it's like doing the actions of faith that for them is genuine faith. You know, they're not old enough yet to comprehend cognitively all the finer points of theology, but they can practice and do sort of the activities of faith. And that is genuine faith for a three-year-old. And then in the the middle years, really belonging to a Christian 
community. So the family at first, but then also being part of the church is really important. And the way that they think about faith is I believe because we believe. Um, so, you know, elementary and middle kids, it's not yet a personally owned faith. I believe because I'm part of the tribe. Um, and then moving into the teen years, this is where that, uh, the primary mode of spiritual engagement is a wrestling and a searching and a questioning, which is often terrifying to parents. Um, but that's actually really important and it's actually essential, uh, to moving to an adult owned faith. So knowing those things for me has been really helpful in my own journey of discipling my kids. Sarah, how old are your kids now? Like what, yeah. what which of these buckets are they in? <laughs> They, so I have one uh, in the affiliative, that middle stage, and one in the searching stage. I have an eight-year-old and a 12-year-old who's almost 13. And when I started all of this, it was, yeah, five years ago. So they were seven. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I've kind of walked the journey uh, from that experiential stage into the searching stage as I've been working on this material. So, yeah. So I want to ask you a question about those, those older two stages in a yeah. moment, but before I do tell me a little bit about your faith upbringing, yeah, like yeah. now that you know, this research, can you see different ways that your parents unconsciously modeled this for you? Oh, absolutely. And so this is part of an interesting part of my story. So I, um, I really look to my parents as, um, people that I sort of modeled my own discipleship of my kids after they did an excellent job. Both my parents were in ministry. Um, my mom uh, became very ill uh, about five years ago, and she actually passed away right while I was writing the book. And um, so a lot of this book for me is sort of continuing her legacy and, um, you know, it's dedicated to her. And yeah, my parents, neither of them grew up in Christian homes. Uh, they came to faith in the 70s. And my mom's family was churched, but she really didn't know Jesus until she was an adult. So they had to think about how do we create family culture that is, um, yeah, devoted to Jesus. That was brand new for them. So we had very, my parents were very, two things, very, um, intentional. So super intentional about our discipleship. And my mom in particular was very creative. So she just had a knack for helping kids understand spiritual things. And so one of the things that I think about is uh, something called a prayer tree that she invented to help us uh, think about or to see how God answers prayer. So she pasted this blank tree on the wall and cut out leaves out of construction paper and had us write specific measurable prayer requests on them. We prayed for those things. And when they were answered, they would go up on the tree and um, just things like that. We did that every day. It was very creative and very intentional. I love it. That's beautiful. And what a powerful way for you to honor her legacy. I'm sorry for your loss, but it sounds like she, yeah. she leaves a really rich faith tradition in you and in your kids and in yep. generations to come. Yeah. She's all over the book. <laughs> so, yeah. So what about you? How about like when you got older into your journey, how, how did they help you when you were in your wrestling seasons? If yeah. in fact, that was a, no, a, there, I, a valley I, that you I, traveled. Absolutely. When I was 14, um, I went to a new school for high school and I was sort of, I don't know, sort of reinventing myself and, you know, dyed my hair purple and did all the, you know, kind of off the beaten path things. And I really, at that age, had a, a question in my mind about, you know, this sort of new 
it sounds silly as an adult looking back on this, but yeah, the sort of new identity that I'm figuring out who I am, does my faith fit with that? Um, or is that going to hold me back from the things that I really want to experience in life? And so, yeah, I wasn't sure when I was 14, if I really wanted to be all in with Jesus. And what they did is, first of all, they were not threatened by that. Um, and this is a big thing, I think, for parents of teenagers to recognize. We often think that these questions that come up and the wrestling and the doubts, we interpret that as a threat to adult faith. When in fact, not pushing through and not allowing those questions to surface is an equal threat to adult faith. Um, because actually, what so the, the model that I um, talk about in the book is from John Westerhoff. And his assertion is that most American churches, they their discipleship for kids stops at the affiliative stage. I believe because we believe because that searching stage is really troubling and difficult to know what to do with. But if the child leaves home still in that, I believe because we believe mode, it makes sense that we see this 50% statistic, right? So if they go off to college and they're separated from the faith community, how do I follow Jesus if my people are not here, right? So anyway, so back to my parents, they, uh, they were not threatened by that phase and they, um, released me to explore that, those questions with people. Like I had a mentor that, um, I sought out and they didn't know her very well, but they trusted her with me and my sort of faith development. They were generous and kind with that season and not threatened. How did that path continue to travel? Like when did it, did, yeah. did it turn? Did it resolve? Yeah. Did, okay. So that was my freshman year of high school. And so this woman, she was a former Young Life staff and, you know, she, I just thought she was so cool and uh, she loved Jesus so much, but she was not my parents. And uh, she used to do, she did a 6am girls Bible study for me and a couple friends. And every Friday we would meet her at six in the morning and yeah, she listened to us and she uh, encouraged us. So that was huge for me and my parents affirming that this relationship that wasn't, it was outside their control in a way, right? Like I'm having these spiritual conversations with somebody else and not them. And I think that can be hard for parents who want to be right in the middle of it. I started meeting with her and then there was a, there was a guest preacher at our church who preached about the woman at the well and um, sort of our longing to be satisfied and gave an altar call and I responded to it. So, um, yeah, it was a short season of searching, but it was important that I had the freedom to do that. If that makes sense. That's great. I, I heard Kara Powell who writes for the Fuller yeah. Youth Institute say once she goes, doubt isn't our greatest enemy. It's responding to our kids doubt with silence. Absolutely. That, that is the greatest threat. And Absolutely. I think that you're right. It, they're, there sometimes are those points where your child makes a statement or they throw out a question or they say something very declarative and definitive about what they now believe or what they don't believe. And it sometimes the gut reflex is to allow that catch in your throat to turn into to an alarming and a vocal response. When in reality, right. I keep learning that sometimes the greatest gift I can give my adolescent kids is, is, a, is quiet and like a really good poker face. Like, yeah, just to be able to, right. it's, I don't, I don't have to be it can be concerning, but it doesn't have to be alarming. 
if that's that makes right. any it's sense. It's that non-anxious leadership presence that we read about anywhere we read about good leadership. I think when we understand that this is actually important for their faith development, it's not threatening. It's actually a way that we can encourage them and say, that's a great question. And how can I help you get yeah. to the bottom of that? So Sarah, let me ask you this question. When we talk about those second two stages, what, what's the name of the, I believe because we believe that's yeah, affiliative. Okay. I think you're right. The first bucket, like doing the things of faith with toddlers yep. feels a little bit, feels lower risk. Right. When we get into affiliative, a lot of times we say like, oh, this is easy. I just have to involve them in the faith community that we're already plugged into. I think one of the Again, I, this is all anecdotal. I don't have hard mm -hmm. data for this, yeah. but it seems like in my, in my friend group, I'm 47. A lot of my friends, five years on either side of me are going through maybe some of their own questioning yeah. regarding the state of the church. And oh. they, un they understand that in theory, there's value in the family being plugged into a faith tribe, but they're asking some very hard and not illegitimate questions about whether those tribes are, are safe or functional or yes. mature or healthy. Yes. yes. So what do you, what do you say to parents who are like, yes, I agree in principle. Um, I want my child and I understand how critical it is for their faith development to be a part of a tribe. But at the same time, they're saying, I don't, I don't know if I trust my tribe. Right. Right. I don't know that the tribe has been honoring to me or to my story or to my journey. And because I don't feel safe there, I, I don't, yeah. I don't want my kids to be a part of that either. What, what right. do you say to those parents, Sarah? Yeah, that's super, super painful and very real. And I completely empathize with that. I think the first thing would be, um, yeah, if you, if you're part of a church that doesn't feel safe, I think that's a, that's a question to really take seriously. And, um, my hope and prayer is that we would be raising children in churches that do feel safe. And so looking for, somewhere that um, feels safe. But I think that what I, so someone asked me once, you know, this 50% thing, are you sure that's such a bad thing that kids are leaving the church? Like the church is so broken right now. Is that really a bad thing? And I responded, well, I think what is troubling to me is that statistic is that kids are leaving Jesus. They're leaving, mm. they're leaving the faith, not just. So they're not church. walking away from an institution. They're walking right. away, they're from, walking away from Jesus. So I would say that the most important thing you can give your kids, in addition to looking for a good, you know, friend group church that is safe and a good tribe that feels like, okay, these are my people is to help them from a young age, not just connect with the body, but as a family to know Jesus personally. Again, all the research about this 82% is that, yeah, church is very important. We can't follow Jesus alone, but actually nothing replaces the influence of parents when it comes to their children's faith development. And so it's parents who talk about and practice their faith in the home. For these kids who are affiliative, and I believe because we believe actually their primary sense of affiliation is with you as the, as the parent and the family. And so what does your family culture look like when it comes to spirituality? Or is that something we just farm out to Sunday school on Sundays? Kind of biggest thing that I try to encourage parents about in this is that can feel overwhelming. All of us feel like we don't have any time to do anything, to practice any kind of faith thing at home. 
And what I would say is actually all it takes is repurposing some of these everyday routines that you already have, like dinner time or bedtime, or car rides for like three to five minutes of spiritual engagement with your kids. And that will drastically change the spiritual culture of your home. And that sounds completely doable. You're not carving out new time. I love that. Yeah. You just talked about how do you repurpose time that you're already spending? That's right. And that's very Deuteronomy six. So this is a big uh, just way from scripture that I feel like encouraged is in Deuteronomy six, uh, the Israelites had been, you know, wandering in the desert. They're about to go into the promised land. There's danger that they're going to forget God in the promised land when they have everything that they need. And they're surrounded by all these other cultures. And the strategy there is not send your kids to good religious schools. It's talk about these things at home, impress them on your children, talk about them as you walk along the road. And as you sit at home, as you lie down and as you get up. So it's basically talk about the Lord in the midst of your daily life. And so that's exactly what I would encourage parents to think about today is, you know, at dinner time, could you do just a few minutes of looking for God's presence in your day? Something I call a God hunt, you know, where did you see God today? Or like my mom did, put up a prayer tree and over dinner, read the leaves and pray for them. Um, so simple repurposing time that you already have with your kids. Sarah, as, as adults, I don't think we ever fully graduate out of that questioning stage. It's not no. like you kind of take <laughs> right. this dip between right. 14 nope. and 22, and then you come nope. out on the other side and all of the pieces align perfectly. What what does it look like for you to appropriately share some of your concerns about your faith journey as an individual or as a couple with your kids? When do you, yeah. when do you have those? That's a great question. Yeah. So the model, actually, I'm glad you said that it is the, the image that they, uh, that Westerhoff uses is of concentric circles, like a tree ring. You actually never grow beyond experiential affiliative and searching. You just like it transcends and includes each previous stage. So yes, in sure. adult own faith, searching is important. So how transparent to be with your kids is a great question. And I think, first of all, that would uh, depend on their age and stage, right? So I probably wouldn't share all of my uh, searching questions with a four-year-old the same way that with a teenager, I might be more transparent. Sure. I do think that when we aren't transparent at all, it, it reeks of sort of an, a lack of authenticity that our kids can see right through. Yeah. I mean, when my mom died, that was a time of being really honest with my kids about, oh yeah, we prayed, we prayed hard that she'd be healed. It was a really rare disease. You know, we thought maybe there would be some rare treatment. And so that was a moment of being honest. I don't have a perfect tied in a bow answer for you. I'm in pain too. The older our kids are, the more transparent we can be. And I think if we, we don't, we don't ever want to be so transparent that we put our burdens onto them where they are pastoring us right. sure. at, at a young age, but we also don't want to be so opaque that they think we never wrestle with anything. Right. No, that's so good. And I think that sometimes as kids get older, there is value in as we tackle scripture to just go ahead and move, move through it chronologically rather yeah. than kind of cherry picking the stories that we oh, feel yeah. are, are, are age appropriate. So right now I'm reading through judges and the people of God are a hot mess in yeah. judges. And there's some yeah. really horrific things in there that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not even always sure what to make sense of. 
I've heard some scholars say the reason that our kids sometimes get rattled by tough issues or tough passages or tough theological questions is because we never identified those for them when they were under our roof. And then they they get to X, Y, or Z. And somebody said, well, well, what about this passage in the Bible? Well, that was not like one that the Sunday school teacher was really excited about teaching and it just, it got skipped over. So I think they're, what I'm learning is I would love to only read like Mark and kind of like the highlight (laughs) reel of Jesus with my kids, but to read through judges with the kids as well, to be able to say like, okay, the, the people of God have like all sorts of warts and flaws and foibles. And like, let's look at how God is faithful to them in the midst of that. Let's look how God in his mercy disciplines them, not to berate them, but to gently kind of woo them back into the fold is something that I haven't figured out how to do perfectly yet, but it's definitely on my to do and to think and to wrestle with. Yeah. No, it does. It's so good because one thing, um, I think a lot of Sunday school curricula, they sort of pull, yeah, like you said, the highlight reel, the, the stories that really appeal to kids. One thing to look out for is when we take a story about a human and we make the human, the hero in that Bible story, as opposed to God being the hero. So I remember when my, uh, one of my kids was in a preschool Sunday school class and came home with a sheet that was about Noah and the ark. And it was, Noah was kind to the animals. How can you be kind to someone this week? And I just was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) This story is about hearing God's voice. It's about God's, you know, judgment and mercy and rescue. I mean, oh my gosh. So I think the more that we pull the Bible stories out from the big narrative arc of scripture, the uh, greater disservice we do to our kids. Yeah. It's easy to teach Noah's Ark in Sunday school. Um, but if we don't help our kids to understand the big story and that God is the hero and what the gospel is, the sticky faith research that you mentioned, Kara Powell, um, shows that one of the biggest confusions that teenagers have about the gospel is the role of behavior. And I wonder where they get that. If what they learn in Sunday school is be nice, like Noah was nice, you know? Right, right. And I I could talk a lot about that. (laughs) And and, and you should, because those are all very important topics. I think that sometimes what I'm realizing that is in my own flesh and insecurity as a parent, part of the reason I can drift towards behavior management isn't because I'm trying to raise model citizens or not because I'm trying to raise godly kids, but it's because I'm inadvertently trying to defend the family brand. Yeah, like yes. there's so this, we, we, we want to look like <laughs> right. upstanding members of the community and we don't want yeah. our kids to be biters and we don't want them to flunk yeah. out of school and we want them to all get varsity letters and to say that that's a that is a culturally imposed phenomenon and if right. i'm not careful like that perfect family illusion could be an idol that i i kneel at whether consciously or unconsciously at the expense of truly discipling my kids that's right So if we're not careful, we can, we can raise well-behaved and mild-mannered children who don't care for the person or the work or the mission of Jesus when they are 17, 18, 22, and you can win the battle and lose the war if you're not careful. Yeah, no, that's really good. It's really good. So Sarah, thank you. So, okay. So for people who want to pick up the book, teach your children well, published with University Press. Yep. It's available on Amazon, on IVP's website, anywhere you buy books. Right. There's a Kindle version of it too. 
And Sarah, if people are more curious about the ministry consulting part of what you yeah. do, how can they find you? Yeah, my website, sarahcowanjohnson.com. And that's with an H, Sarah and Cowan with an A. Um, and on my website, I do have a number of free resources for parents. Um, so, you know, you can explore there. And yeah, sarahcowanjohnson.com. Great, Sarah. Thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.